Okay, so last week we did a recap of Following Jesus with Anxiety. Earlier this week we did the second week of that recap, but a key thing that we did last week is we, we've started trying to figure out what some bonus episodes might look like. So we'd encourage listeners to go back and listen to last week's episode on mindfulness because it's expanding on some things that were in the class, but it's kind of a way for you to, it's for people in the class and it's really for people who are not in the class. And so we're starting a conversation today that is expanding on some things that were in uh, the class that happened last night, but are we're going to kind of expand on them, but also start talking about, um, well, I don't, I feel like I'm just dancing around the topic, but what, what are we actually going to talk about today, Ben? Yeah. So, um, the, the third practice, if you will, the third process in, in act that we talked about, uh, was acceptance. Um, and acceptance is set over and against avoidance. So am I willing to be here now with whatever, feelings, sensations, desires, um, emotions, uh, urges are, are present and still do what matters most to me. This is a big ask for people that are um, struggling with chronic anxiety or depression or anger or fear or name the emotional experience that most of us would rather not have. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the invitation to open up to that is a, is a big one. And so um, acceptance versus avoidance is, is act language. And I want to I want to particularly use biblical categories okay. uh, to kind of unpack this and show, hey, there's a deep, rich biblical tradition. In fact, it's so deep that we're not going to be able to talk about it all on this podcast. We're going to keep riffing on it as we go. Yeah, I was stumbling a little at the beginning because we, we originally were like, let's just do this one episode on this. And then we're like, actually, it's probably going to have to be several episodes. So. Yeah. So basically, this is a topic, um, the topic you could call it a few different things. You could call it, um, use Paul's language, which is to participate with Jesus in his dying and rising. Um, Koinonia, community, uh, fellowship with him in his sufferings Mm -hmm. uh, is one of the ways that Paul talks about it. So we could talk about it as participation with Christ. Um, We could use more modern language, like um, Michael Gorman has coined the term cruciform or cruciformity, Mm -hmm. which is an architectural term that just means cross-shaped. It was used to to design cathedrals and and old church buildings in the shape of a cross. Um, So he's talking about how the the life of of a believer in Jesus is shaped by the cross. Um, We could use uh, another term that I actually really appreciate. A guy named Paul Miller wrote a book called The J-Curve as kind of giving us a a symbol to like depict this. All of those are really representing the same thing, which is the pattern of Jesus's life was a U-shape. It was incarnation, and then it was a descent into crucifixion and burial, and then it was a raising up and ascent to, through resurrection to ascension. And so that U-shape, if you can picture in your mind, you've kind of, maybe an upsilon, like the Greek capital oh, letter yes. <laughs> that has the little like, uh, you know, wings on both sides of the U that kind of like you're going along in normal life. That's kind of incarnation. And then something happens that plummets you down into a dying experience, a death experience. You eventually reach the bottom, which is burial, which is like Holy Saturday. Mm. Is there any hope? What's going to happen? And that's the place the Holy Spirit shows up with resurrection power to raise from the dead. And then you begin this ascent, this rising um, towards uh, exaltation, towards glorification. We could use those language. So so why is this relevant to what we're talking about? Well, um, Elizabeth Kubler-Ross, a psychologist who is most famous for her categorization of the process of grief, 
Many people think grief is an emotion. It's not an emotion. It's a psychological process. Mm. Sorrow might be <laughs> sorrow might be the emotion. Yeah. Um, but grief is a psychological process that we we must experience to health healthily metabolize loss, if you will. And so Elizabeth Kubler Ross, this is her thing. She's amazing. She gave the five stages of grief, which are more like a cyclical nature. They come almost more in waves and not yeah. so ordered. It's not like a checklist. Like, That's well, right. I've done that one. Exactly. Which are, um, it begins with denial uh, and then it moves into um, uh, anger, like uh, from anger, then we get bargaining, um, kind of if-then statements, if only this, then this, or um, and then we move into depression, which is kind of like despair. And then finally, A is acceptance is the last of the five stages. They're actually brilliant, and they name a real experience that people mm-hmm. have when they experience loss. But she's got a great quote, and I'm going to read this and talk about why this quote matters for Christians. Okay. The most beautiful people we have known are those who have known defeat known suffering, known struggle, known loss, and have found their way out of the depths. These persons have an appreciation, a sensitivity, and an understanding of life that fills them with compassion, gentleness, and a deep loving concern. Beautiful people do not just happen. That's a great quote. It's profound, right? Yeah. Uh, and, and really what it's, what it's talking about is Beautiful people. Again, you could use the, there's a, uh, old Christian writers would talk about a soul having gravitas, a, a weightiness, a, a, a gravitational pull to them. Um, we're not talking about overt beauty, you know, such mm-hmm. that would be found Charisma on the, yeah, or, yeah, anything like that. We're talking about there's, there's a weightiness to their person. They've got a presence about them that's, that when they're in the room, they don't necessarily draw the attention to themselves. In fact, they probably don't, but, but they've suffered and they've suffered well. You know, we're, we're recording here in Orlando, which is Orange County, and I've heard from citrus farmers that when winters come, frosts come, uh, they are really, really dangerous to destroy an entire crop of oranges. Mm. But uh, So they go out there with misters and blankets, and they do all this stuff. Yeah. But people will say that um, if oranges survive a really bad frost, you will always get the sweetest, most delicious orange juice from those oranges. Hmm. I just think there's God weaving this pattern into creation, which is if you survive the suffering you're going through, the pain you're holding, the the anxiety, the the anger, the depression, the despair that you're in right now, if you survive it, um, you actually come out with a level of sweetness, most likely. If you suffer well with a level of sweetness of, um, as she used, compassion, gentleness, deep loving concern, beautiful people don't just happen. So then the question is, well, how do they happen? Yeah. <laughs> well, how do I suffer well? And this is where I think the Christian tradition outstripes everyone else. Mm-hmm. We shine here because we worship and follow and give our 100% devotion to a man who lived and was crucified in shame and weakness and then raised again to be the most beautiful, glorious being in the universe. That's our story. That's our that's our yeah. our meta narrative. That's the core that we have. And so, I think what's been lost is we've done a really good job saying that that all of that was Jesus for us, right? Mm-hmm. Jesus lived for me. He lived the life I should have lived. He died the death I should have died. He rose again for me, and now I get to rise again with him. But we've not talked really about how Jesus has done that so that um, when when we suffer, our suffering might be like His. So that when we in this life experience pain and difficulty and challenges and obstacles, in fact, what we're being invited into is to share in koinonia with him in his sufferings. So when I suffer, 
I'm joining in with Jesus's sufferings. I'm bearing his cross with him. He's up under it alongside me, but, but his, the pattern of his life actually gives meaning to the pattern of my life. Mm. Yeah, I can see how that's, as you were thinking, as, as you were laying that out, I was thinking a little bit about what we talked about in the last episode that we're going to touch on again in a future episode of the importance of presence. Mm-hmm. And it, it seems if in our Christian tradition, and maybe this is Christian tradition in the West, maybe this is Christian tradition in American culture recently, um, we're really good with Jesus's work for me in a past tense, mm-hmm. died on the cross, rose from the dead. And we're, we're very good with it in a future tense, mm-hmm. going to heaven when I die or being resurrected after death. But then we're left with this sort of gospel gap where mm. we're not really sure how that maps onto present reality in between yes. incarnation, resurrection. Yeah, that's really well said. So the, the good news of Jesus's life, death and resurrection for the past is that the penalty of sin is done with. No more condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, Romans 8.1. Mm. The good news for the future is that one day the presence of sin will be completely gone. We won't struggle with the things that we struggle with now. And not only our sin, but also um, Revelation 21, um, weeping and mourning and pain and death, all of this will be no more. Um, and, 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 you know, First John 3, right? When we see him, we, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. We will be transformed in, in a moment into the image of Jesus, um, perfected, glorified, right? But in this in-between, we deal with the, the power of sin. And the gospel is somehow good news for us as we fight against the power of sin in our lives. And Jesus is freeing us from it, albeit uh, slowly but surely. Slowly, yeah. yeah. And so how does that happen? What is the process of being freed from the power of sin, or you could say from the ways in which we are experiencing suffering and sorrow as well, the other, these other aspects of the fall. Mm-hmm. And so I'm going to go to Romans 6. Okay. And in Romans 6, um, in verse 4, uh, Paul says this, We were buried, therefore, with Jesus by baptism into death, in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, who I believe there is the Holy Spirit, um, we too might walk in newness of life. So, so there is this death and resurrection that Jesus experienced, and baptism is meant to symbolize that, that we're united to Jesus, we are immersed into his person, and so his death becomes our death, his resurrection becomes our resurrection. And here's where the most important pivot happens. That's not just a there and then reality. It totally is, right? Romans 8 talks about um, how the whole creation is groaning for the, for the revealing of the sons of God, the resurrection of the body. Mm. That's going to be awesome. Judgment Day, it's going to be awesome and awful for, for different reasons, mm-hmm. right? Um, Jesus is going to come back and he's going to make all things new and he's going to raise the, the wicked and the righteous, the, the just and the unjust, and he's going to send some to eternal damnation and some to eternal bliss and joy in his presence. And that is this future resurrection of the body that we can all look forward to. But what I think is so important is to notice that there's actually a here and now dying and rising. Because he says, just as Christ was raised from the dead, we too might walk in newness of life. And so I think, um, again, in 1 Corinthians 15, I think it's 30 or 31, Paul says, I die daily. I die every single day. And uh, it reminds me of Martin Luther when he talked about, I, I, I need to be baptized every morning. Mm-hmm. In other words, I need to re, reacquaint myself that the story of Jesus' life, the pattern of his life, life, death, and resurrection, is the daily pattern of my life if I'm in Jesus. Um, Paul Miller says it, something like this. He's like, the father is a great storyteller, and he found a story that he loves to tell so much that he's just going to tell that same story over and over and over again in all of our lives, mm-hmm. which is 
life, death, and resurrection. Yeah. Well, and there's a sense, too, that even at the fundamental biological level, that is a daily reality. Mm-hmm. You live your day. You have a symbolic death every night when you go to sleep, and then you resurrect in the morning to live again and repeat that cycle endlessly. So it's, it's regardless of any sort of, like, psychological connotations, it's yes. woven in at the biological level for how we function. Yeah, that's exactly right. And why I think it's so interesting is that Elizabeth Kubler-Ross, as far as I know, um, I, she may be a Christian, I don't know truly, but she's known for her work in secular psychology. Um, she's naming this as a very human experience, mm. not just a Christian experience. Now, we have the meaningfulness of um, uh, dying our million deaths <laughs> throughout our lifetime is a is embracing Jesus in that dying. It's fellowship, it's it's intimacy with Jesus in the experience of dying. Um, because Jesus died, I die. Because this is the pattern of his life, it's the pattern of my life, and I don't do it by myself, I do it with him. It's, mm-hmm. again, koinonia, fellowship with, with Jesus in his sufferings, which is a Philippians 3, I believe. Um, and so, to talk about this is, is, is really important for to give us a vision, um, Romans eight seventeen says, and if we're children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellows, er, fellow heirs with Christ. Here it is. Provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. So Jesus suffered already once final sins dealt with like his, we can't, we can't enmesh these two. Mm-hmm. Our suffering is not salvific in that sense. Yeah. It doesn't purchase anything. It's not. But the pattern of dying and rising is still the, 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 um, yeah, it's the story God wants to tell in our lives. And so we are entering into that. So, so what does this actually mean? Well, there's a live danger for Christians, um, and, and really for anybody who's religious, uh, or spiritual, you could say, and, and psychologists have named this spiritual bypass. Okay. And it's the use of spirituality to avoid real unavoidable suffering and pain. So here's an example. Um, Nate, you come to me and you've gone through some significant suffering recently and you begin telling me this suffering. And I say, man, aren't you so glad that all things work together for good for mm-hmm. those who are, you know, who love God and are called according to his purpose? Romans 8, 28. Yeah. I'm quoting Bible, which is good. Quote the Bible, y'all. Like, yeah. it's really important. And quote it to people who are suffering. You can totally do that. But, but there's a way in which what I'm trying to do is I'm trying to get you out of having to feel the pain of, of dying in mm-hmm. that moment, um, the death of your suffering. Um, and, and so we can do this. It's, it's a form of avoidance dressed up in spiritual robes. Um, and, and it's a big deal. Spiritual bypass is a big deal. Yeah. Um, the way that J- uh, Paul Miller talks about it is if you imagine a, uh, this diagram that we talked about, like at the form of a J, it's, um, it's skipping the dip. It's drawing a dotted line across the top rather than going down into dying with Jesus in order to rise again with Jesus. Mm. And it's interesting that for the most part, people actually resent that, I, w- I would imagine. Like if someone comes to you with something really profound and you just kind of quote, a, we call it platitudes, like yes. they're true, but they're not helpful in the moment. Yeah. And it's it's not only that it's, it sounds like it's not only that it's not helpful in that they already probably knew that mm-hmm. it's short circuiting what would truly be helpful in yes. the moment. Yeah, I think that's right. And yet if let's just say, um, you know, heaven forbid, let's just say you came to me and you had a, a really awful cancer diagnosis and I'd already survived stage four cancer and, and I'm coming out of the back end as a survivor and you bring that to me because you know of my story. And I say, Nate, one of the things I learned in my suffering was that all things work together for good. It really is true. God is good. He's wise and he's in this. 
there's actually maybe a, a way in which that actually lands more with you mm-hmm. because you know I've suffered. Yeah. You know I know what you've gone through, that I didn't avoid it, that I actually endured it well, that I joined with Jesus in this dying of sorts in order to join with Jesus in this rising of sorts. Mm-hmm. And so spiritual bypass is a real problem, and it's a, it's a perennial problem for religious and spiritual people. Um, and so what do you do instead? Well, um, Paul Miller gives three really helpful categories um, of situations that send us into this dying and rising pattern. And he said the three situations are love, suffering, and repentance. So if I'm going to love somebody, love is always substitutionary. It's always self-sacrificing. It's always at the expense of me. It's self-giving in that sense. Mm -hmm. So if it's just something as simple as changing the diaper of the screaming baby so your spouse can sit down and, and just rest for a moment... There's a, there's a sacrificing my comfort for their comfort. There's a, it's substitutionary, right? And so love in that moment, very simple example, I'm, being, I'm, I'm entering into a dying with Jesus. And, and that's so important that this is meaningful because Jesus, there's a nearness with him when I choose to love. And in loving, I experience suffering. I experience dying with him. Mm-hmm. And then I'm, I'm, there's a hopeful expectation that the Spirit's going to show up with resurrection power because he, he, he loves to find tombs and make them empty. That's, that's his thing. And so if I'm dying and buried into this like mini death of loving my spouse, right, um, what might resurrection look like? Well, my, my spouse gets to rest maybe needed restoration and comfort. Um, maybe it actually creates a, a level of intimacy between us. Like they're, they're grateful towards me and they express that gratitude. Maybe it actually gives us a sense of, um, you know, shared camaraderie in this parenting of this child, right? Like mm-hmm. there's all these ways in which that can show up in resurrection. And so now you see, this isn't just a meta narrative thing that's happening at the end of the ages. It's actually a daily moment by moment choice to die with Jesus in order to rise with Jesus. Yeah. A, this is a very subtle point, but it, as soon as you used love as the first one and then gave the example, it was very clear we're in this conversation conceiving of love, not primarily as a feeling towards mm-hmm. another person. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and I, I like to use uh, our professor, John Frame's um, categories of affection, action, and allegiance, but the, the order's backwards. So it starts with allegiance. I'm committed to this person. I've got a devotion to them. Mm-hmm. And out of that flows action, which is, to your point, love is not an emotion primarily. Um, but flowing from my allegiance and my action often is affection, and it ought to be there at some point. Like, mm-hmm. um, and, and there might be affection that comes from the resurrection piece, right? Uh, that, that my allegiance to this person's well-being, they're good, and my action for that good, substitutionary action on their behalf, actually results in a growth in affection for them. Yeah, which makes a lot of sense when you lay it out that way, but is very countercultural in that I think we almost exclusively think of it the other way. Mm-hmm. Is If there's affection there, I will act in a certain way and hopefully secure that person's allegiance. Yeah, that's right. Rather than thinking of it primarily as starting with my allegiance to them. Which at some point becomes manipulation and no longer love. Yeah. Um, Which for everything, I know we're kind of getting a little bit off track, but I feel like it's still relevant. It's like that is the main critique of the love languages mm, is it's mm -hmm. very, if you swap the order, it does turn into manipulation. Yes. But if you come at it from the direction you were just talking about in this J curve reality Mm. in allegiance, then action, then affection, Mm -hmm. now it is a way to be thoughtful about your action Mm -hmm. rather than earn your allegiance. Yes, that's a great way to put it, for sure. And whenever I use the the love languages, I always make that caveat. Hey, these are not to be demanded of the other person. They're to be freely offered as, as a help to love them better. Um, so if love is the first one, the second one I gave was suffering, um, which is 
I'm passive in suffering. Like it comes upon me. And so many of our listeners, because this is connected to the anxiety learning community, might be suffering emotional turmoil, emotional difficulties. And, and so what's so important about this is there's all kinds of research that's been shown that actually opening up to my emotions in the present moment is the way to endure them well. Um, if I try really hard to avoid emotions and, and experiences, bodily sensations I don't want to have, um, I actually make them worse. Because what happens is, and, and my favorite example is to take a cold shower. Mm-hmm. <laughs> if you just try to take a cold shower, your body's going to tense up and everything in you is resisting the experience of the cold water on your body. But if you actually take deep breaths and relax into it and just allow the sensation to be on your skin, allow yourself to feel coldness, you actually will experience it's not as bad as when you were, you know, really tense and trying to resist it with everything you could. So again, this is, this is connected to we've got the plain experience, the raw experience of anger or of anxiety or of pain. Um, and then we add to it a level of commentary that says, I can't have this. And that level of con- commentary that we add on there exacerbates our suffering. Mm-hmm. It actually makes it worse. And so if you can just experience the pain as it is, it's, it actually is not, it's way more bearable than when you tell yourself this is unbearable. Yeah. Um, so what's incredible is acceptance is one of the most important skills for people who have chronic pain. So I'm talking like physiological chronic pain, back pain, um, carpal tunnel, like things that will not go away. They might get cortisol shots. They might get different pain meds to get rid of it, but they just have to live with this pain. Learning practices and skills of accepting the pain Um, In other words, being hospitable towards it rather than, you know, shutting the door and locking it so that it can't come in actually makes the pain not only bearable, but actually in some circumstances, it it alleviates some of the pain. Interesting. Interesting. It it really is remarkable. And so um, Robert Frost has this um, quote in one of his poems that the only way out is through. And that's really true here. Suffering, the only way out is through. Now, Paul was let down out of a window in a basket to avoid getting captured. There are some, there are plenty of sufferings that are avoidable. And if they are, dip out. Mm -hmm. Like I will never, um, you know, choose to grin and bear it when I'm getting uh, some sort of dental surgery done. I'm going to get the Novocaine. Yeah. Speaking from experience, I just had had to have a tooth pulled a couple couple months ago. And it was very much uh, like, it's not so bad, but it's because I had like three... Yes. Three anesthetic shots and just couldn't feel anything. Yes. It's like, yeah, no big deal. Like, I'm not going to be like, you know what? I work out a lot. I'm tough. I can uh-huh. deal with this. I'm like, no, yeah. I just. Yeah, this isn't grin and bear at stoicism. Yeah. And I think stoicism is incredibly wise in many ways, but that's not what we're talking about here. Yeah. It is avoid the suffering if you can, but, but when your avoidance strategies become part of the suffering, you actually make your life worse. Mm. And so opening to it is actually the way through it. And so um, that wasn't even intentional. It just works out that way. It just way. happens. <laughs> and so, uh, but Jesus actually, for, for those of us who are in Christ, promises his presence in that suffering. He knows he was, he endured all of these experiences on our behalf. He was rejected. He was poor. He was hungry. He was um, experienced physical pain like none of us will ever have. He sweat his own blood. He knew what it was like to have best friends turn their back. Like he knows suffering. He knows what it's like to be passive and receive evil coming at him. And the third and final one is repentance. And we'll be brief here, which is um, if I've done wrong, if I've sinned, if I've harmed somebody, if I've done something even unintentional, if it's a sin of omission or commission, whatever it is, if I've sinned, if I embrace that and I say, um, I don't want this in my life, the evil is actually not outside me coming after me, but it's within me. 
um, repentance is the invitation. Mm -hmm. Um, Romans 8, again, puts it, um, if you by the Spirit put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. There's death and resurrection. If you put it to death, if you repent, if you kill that sin in your life, resurrection is promised to you here and now in many little in many little ways but there and then resurrection on the on the judgment day when jesus comes back and so that is an entering into this suffering with the one who knew no sin but became sin on my behalf it's it's joining with him on that cross and so the the last thing i'll say is um our go, our job in all of this is to embrace death is to enter into the suffering is to experience fellowship, koinonia with Jesus in his dying, and then to wait patiently, hopefully, expectantly, and prayerfully for the Holy Spirit to show up with resurrection power. And he will. Um, the Holy Spirit, his power is made perfect in our weakness. We know from 2 Corinthians 12 mm. or Romans 8, 26, that says the, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. Another way to say that, though, is that he is allergic to your perceived strength. Mm. If you show up and think you've got it all together, he'll say, hey, you look like you got it. You don't need me. But if we empty ourselves, like Jesus in Philippians 2, if we empty ourselves and embrace this suffering, whether it's the suffering of love or of uh, suffering uh, in and of itself or of repentance, if we embrace those things with Jesus, joining him there on that cross, we have the hope that the Spirit's going to come and raise us from the dead in in little ways here and now, but in, in a great way there and then. And that's the call to become a beautiful person by not spiritually bypassing your suffering, not you know skipping the dip, not drawing the dotted line across the top, not avoiding it, but entering into it, knowing the only way out is through. But we have a companion in that, and it's Jesus who's gone before us. Yeah, that's really good. I feel like that it gives us some talking points for future episodes, because I'm already thinking of things. I'm like, oh, we could add on to this and kind of... There's a great way of illustrating a couple of things you just said, but I actually want to not even mention them right now mm-hmm. to save them for a future episode that we're going to continue this conversation. That's great. Thanks, Nate. So.